Welcome, NRP. It's good to see everybody. Happy Father's Day. This morning, Gabriel pointed out this scripture where Jesus uh, is confronting the Pharisees. And uh, there's a man with a deformed hand in the synagogue. And it's the Sabbath. And the Jews are very uptight about the Sabbath. Um, in fact, some were so uptight, they literally lost a battle because they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. And the Romans just came and killed all of them. That's how serious some of them were about the Sabbath. And Jesus, um, Jesus heals this guy in front of the Pharisees and he says, is it, is it basically not right that we should heal people on the Sabbath. And the thing is, is like our Sabbath in the church, because with Christ came a new creation, so there's a new first day once Jesus is raised from the dead. So now the first day is our Sabbath. And we can create this whole thing about what this is supposed to be, right? we can create a tradition about what this is supposed to be. And there's some real good reasons for a lot of what we do on a Sunday morning. But one thing that we uh, really have made up our minds as the leadership for this church is that we want, we don't want to be Pharisees. And so when God is saying something to us, we want to listen to it and not be kind of stuck in uh, well, this is what we planned, right? And right as God's given me this scripture, Kevin was praying during our prayer time, and he was really crying out that God would bring healing today. So I'm reading about how Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, and right at the same time, Kevin is praying that God will heal on the Sabbath. And so I just was like, all right. <laughs> I need to stop and say, God, what do you want to do today? Because I had this whole message about uh, how we know that Jesus is God. That was the question we were going to go over today. So we really want to talk about fatherhood today. And let's be honest, like, there's some deep wounds that come from fatherhood and the lack of it or what a dad did to you, or what a dad didn't do for you. And frankly, once you're a dad, <laughs> there's some wounds you can feel from your own kids, right? Like, like there's some, and there's some wounds you just feel of not feeling like you live up to being the dad that you're supposed to be, right? It is a, it's a hard job. It almost feels impossible. And so I kind of want to do my best to tackle this this morning. Of course, we went long, so I have less time than usual when I need more time than usual, but we'll see what God does. But I just want to, just for however long it takes, um, really look at Scripture from this lens of fatherhood and sonship. And, you know, if you've read your Bible or you've been in church for a while, just, just start running through your mind this whole idea of fatherhood 
in Scripture. And I want to read this to you. This is very interesting. This is the end of the Bible and the beginning of the Bible. So I, I heard the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, right at the transition. I just want to read this. So we're going to read Malachi is the last book of the Bible. Malachi 4, verse 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament ends saying, unless the hearts of the father are turned towards their children and the hearts of the children are turned towards the father, there will be utter destruction. Utter meaning like you don't get back up from utter destruction. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And the reason they focus on Judah is Jesus came from the lineage of Judah. So Malachi, unless you fathers and sons turn your hearts towards each other, utter destruction. Matthew, Jesus is the son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. Fatherhood, it's right there. Right there is the transition. I don't think that's by accident. And so what I want to kind of share with you is some insight that, that I've gotten from kind of studying the Old Testament and kind of getting a more Jewish perspective on it. Um, uh, kind of what, what we see in the Bible is this idea of the firstborn, right? It keeps popping up all throughout Scripture, right? And... Um, and Paul even talks about Jesus as being the firstborn from among the dead, all right? So in other words, that Jesus is the firstborn resurrected body from the dead, all right? His body is a different body than Lazarus when he's raised from the dead or the, or the widow's son when she's raised from the dead, all right? And and kind of the, the best way I've ever heard it explained is the, uh, Rabbi David Foreman. He says, basically, the firstborn son in a family in, in the ancient world really takes on the role of the third parent. All right? And how many firstborns are in here? There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. There's my first one right there, yeah. Kari, you're a firstborn? Okay, not a big surprise. Um, and, and, and anyways, the, the, the firstborn, the idea is, that that's why the firstborn gets the inheritance. It's not because 
oh, we hate the other kids, all right? It's because the firstborn came with firstborn responsibility. And the firstborn responsibility was to make sure that the teachings of mom and dad made it to the children. So the ideal firstborn is someone who hears the teachings of the mom and the dad, obeys them, but they're also a kid, all right? So they're not mom and dad, they're a child, but they're not totally just a child either. They're kind of this in-between mediator between mom and dad and the children. And so if, if the firstborn goes wrong, your family's got a problem. Is basically what's going on here. All right? So the firstborn is the one that's supposed to teach the other kids. And so when you start to see scripture from that point of view, you see that it's always going wrong. All right? So the firstborn of God, the very firstborn of the world, is Adam. And he blows it. And then his firstborn, Cain, he's the first murderer. I mean, you, you think you have problems with your kids, all right? You only have two kids, and one of them kills the other one, all right? That's a problem, all right? And what's interesting is, and, and then you go to, uh, so, so after Cain kills Abel, the scripture says that um, Eve gave birth to another son to replace Cain, or to replace Abel, and named him Seth. And it says in those days, people began to call out on the name of the Lord. And so in many ways, Seth, right? So when you have Cain kills Abel, all right, you lose one firstborn because he's a murderer. So he's disqualified himself to pass anything good on, right? And then you have Abel's dead. And so they need a new person that's going to pass it on. And that person is Seth. And when Seth is born, that's when people begin to cry out unto the, na unto the name of the Lord. And from the lineage of Seth comes, guess who? Noah. Right? And Noah is the only righteous man in his generation. And so then Noah gets us through the flood. And then after the flood, we have Babel, okay? So the descendants of Noah rebel against God. They create Babel. And right after Babel, we have Abraham. And Abraham begets Isaac. But before he begets Isaac, he gets his, his wife's maidservant pregnant because his wife is like, I'm never going to have a child why don't we use this custom where you can take this woman, she'll give the baby to me. It's like a surrogate child thing. And God says, that's not the promise. 
And so that firstborn, Ishmael, is sent away. And then the firstborn of the promise, Isaac, is who Abraham ends up with. And we just keep seeing it happening over and over again. This, this idea, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the firstborn, but he despises, the scripture even comes out and says that he despises his birthright. And so God gives the birthright to Jacob. Jacob has two wives. Also, scripture is always showing us anytime you have more than one wife, it's a disaster. All right. Um, Jacob has two wives. The firstborn son of Jacob is Reuben. The, um, but his, his other son, the firstborn of the wife that he really wanted, is Joseph. And because Isaac or Jacob prefers Joseph, it creates a war within the household until finally uh, the, the sons of Leah want to kill Joseph to get rid of him because he's usurped Reuben's rightful place as the firstborn. And a lot of folks say that's why they end up in slavery. It is the consequence you sold your brother into slavery and now you go into slavery. And so we see that Joseph really rises up as the firstborn representative of God's plan for Israel. But then check this out. After Joseph brings people to Egypt, there's 210 years of slavery. And then God raises up a Moses. And when Moses comes to Pharaoh, and he tells him, let my people go. He says to him, let Israel go because Israel is my firstborn son. Not a person anymore, but a nation. And so the plan all along was that God had, and, and if you go back in Deuteronomy, God basically says, I will keep Israel for myself. The other nations can be given over to false gods, but I will keep Israel for myself. And so Israel was supposed to be the firstborn nation. They were supposed to be the nation. Remember when God told Abraham, I will make your name great. I will bless you and through you, all the nations will be blessed. Israel was supposed to be the firstborn nation. They were supposed to be the kid, the nation, that taught all the other nations how to do what they were supposed to do. But they blew it too. They blew it too. And then when, uh, when, when God raises up David, to bring Israel back to God and establish uh, the Israel nation. 
when, when David wants to create a temple, God says, no, you don't get to build a house for me. I'm going to build the house for you. Your son Solomon, which means peace, he will be my son. And so Solomon's role was supposed to be uh, the representative of God once again to reestablish Israel as that righteous nation that would teach all other nations how to live righteously. So everything hinges on the baton getting passed to the firstborn. And for the firstborn to take that baton and run with it in a righteous way. Everything hinges on that. And that is why all hell breaks out and comes against the firstborn all the time. Then we get to the New Testament. And we have this guy, Jesus, show up. Do you remember what happens? He goes into the river. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus comes and he's baptized. And after he's baptized, he comes up and a voice comes from heaven. And he says, This is my son. Listen to him. This is my son. Listen to him. God was waiting for a firstborn that could fully represent him to us, that could show humanity what it meant to live according to the Father's values. And Jesus was that firstborn son. And it's interesting, we look at the story. Of Isaac and Abraham. And it's an amazing story. And I think this is what we're shooting for. See, Abraham miraculously has Isaac. All right? Sarah's like 80 years old. You're not supposed to have babies when you're 80 years old. All right? They have Isaac. Now it's like 30 years later, and God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him uh, on this mountain. And what we see is Abraham is at such, uh, he is in, in such sync with God by this time of his life. He had messed up, and, but God had just been there for him. He doesn't even talk to Sarah about it. He doesn't talk to anybody about it. The Bible doesn't even say he deliberates for even a second. It, there, there, there's no sense when you read that scripture. It's in Genesis 22. And I'd read it, but we're short on time, so I'm plowing through. I'm just going to tell you the story. But there's, there's no sense that Isaac, or that um, uh, Abraham thought twice he just grabs his son and they head towards this mountain. 
And then as, they, they, as they're headed up the mountain, Abraham puts the wood, he, he sends the servants away, which is weird. And he puts the wood on Isaac, he puts the wood on Isaac's back. And so Isaac is walking up this mountain carrying the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on. And he says, Father, there isn't a sacrifice. And actually he says, Father, and Abraham says, here I am, son. And there, there, there's some deep teaching on that, that why, why does he even need to say that? I'm, I'm here, son. It's, it's like Abraham is saying, God is asking me to do something that is so impossible. We both just figured it out. I see now you have figured it out too, that there's no sacrifice. But so who's the sacrifice? Right? Isaac's starting to figure this out. Isaac's starting to figure this out. And Abraham, still, he has so much faith, he's able to say to Isaac, I'm here with you. Think about that. And Isaac keeps going up the mountain with him. Now Abraham's a hundred and something now, and Isaac's probably 30 years old. All right? I mean, I'm maybe 20 years older than Quincy over here. If we, if we did a foot race, he'd blow me away. He's 20 years younger than me. All right? But imagine a Quincy with an 80-year-old guy. Who's going to win that fight if there's a fight? If Isaac wants to run, he can run. Abraham's not going to catch him. Isaac is there by his own volition. Guys, this might be the only firstborn son story where the baton got fully passed. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture. Think about what is happening with this father and son. You have Abraham obeying God and trusting in God. He has taught his son so well by this time that his son trusts the same, to the same degree that Abraham does. This isn't just a story about a father. This is a story about a father and a son. And that that son has gotten to a place of obedience and trust with his father. That he lets his dad put him on an altar and pull back a knife to kill him. And they're both doing it out of obedience to God. That's my prayer for our next generation. That's my prayer for for fatherhood and motherhood in this church that we will get to a place where when God tells us to do something our kids aren't why are we doing this dad this doesn't make sense dad what is going on why are we doing it this way we have actually gotten to a place when we've raised our kids that if God speaks no matter what 
how crazy it is. Our kids have gotten to a place where they see our lives and they can trust our God so much that they would let themselves be put on the altar. That's a standard. Right? That's a standard to try to reach. And as far as I can tell, in all of Scripture, this is the only time that ever happens. If you look at almost all the other uh, father and son moments in Scripture, it's usually the son gets it and the father didn't, or the father got it and the son didn't. And in Malachi, it's saying, unless this happens, unless this father and son thing gets to where both generations trust me completely, the generation before and the generation after, until both generations trust me completely, if that cannot happen, then utter destruction will come. So there's a lot at stake for this. This trust, this obedience. You won't obey somebody volitionally unless you trust them. It's impossible to obey somebody if you do not trust them. You won't do it. You might do it under threat, but it, you're not going to do it not under threat if you don't trust the person. That's the trust God is calling both generations too. The Father and the Son. And that's why it's so significant that Jesus Christ on the night he's betrayed, on the night he's in the garden, on the night he's telling his disciples, please stay up and pray. If you don't pray, you're not going to make it through the night. You're going to blow it tonight if you don't stay up with me and pray. And they all fall asleep. They don't pray, and they do all leave him by the end of the night. But that night, Jesus comes before the Father. And he says, if it's possible, Dad, I don't want to have to go through what I'm about to have to go through but not my will, yours be done. And so once again, we see the perfect obedience of a son to his father. And Jesus, from that, creates a new nation all that are in him now become that nation that teaches the other nations what it means to be children of God. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter to the kingdom of heaven. God is saying, because of what Jesus did, we now know what it looks like to be a child of God. Our older brother, the firstborn brother, showed us what the Father's teaching looks like, 
and the benefit of it is they can kill my body and it will be resurrected and I'll spend eternity with God. And that's why I tell both my sons, you both get to be the firstborn. I said it once, you don't remember. You both get to be the firstborn. Every single person in here gets to be the firstborn. Because we're born of the Spirit now. We're born of God. And, and that is our mission. That is our calling. For every child in here, every adult in here, that is what we're called to, to be the firstborn in this world. Amen.